Chapter Fifteen. The business was practically settled from the moment I never followed him. It was a pitiful surrender to agitation, but my being aware of this had somehow no power to restore me. I only sat there on my tomb and read into what my little friend had said to me the fullness of its meaning. By the time I had grasped the whole of which I had also embraced, for absence, the pretext that I was ashamed to offer my pupils and the rest of the congregation such an example of delay. What I said to myself above all was that Miles had got something out of me, and that the proof of it for him would be just this awkward collapse. He had got out of me that there was something I was much afraid of, and that he should probably be able to make use of my fear to gain, for his own purpose, more freedom. My fear was of having to deal with the intolerable question of the grounds of his dismissal from school, for that was really but the question of the horrors gathered behind. That his uncle should arrive to treat with me of these things was the solution that, strictly speaking, I ought now to have desired to bring on. But I could so little face the ugliness and the pain of it that I simply procrastinated and lived from hand to mouth. The boy, to my deep discomposure, was immensely in the right. Was in a position to say to me. Either you clear up with my guardian the mystery of this interruption of my studies, or you cease to expect me to lead with you a life that's so unnatural for a boy. What was so unnatural for the particular boy I was concerned with was this sudden revelation of a consciousness and a plan. That was what really overcame me. What prevented my going in? I walked round the church, hesitating, hovering. I reflected that I had already, with him, hurt myself beyond repair. Therefore, I could patch up nothing. And it was too extreme an effort to squeeze beside him into the pew. He would be so much more sure than ever to pass his arm into mine and make me sit there for an hour in close, silent contact with his commentary on our talk. For the first minute since his arrival, I wanted to get away from him. As I paused beneath the high east window and listened to the sounds of worship, I was taken with an impulse that might master me. I felt completely should I give it the least encouragement. I might easily put an end to my predicament by getting away altogether. Here was my chance. There was no one to stop me. I could give the whole thing up, turn my back, and retreat. It was only a question of hurrying again for a few preparations to the house which the attendants at church of so many of the servants would practically have left unoccupied. No one, in short, could blame me if I should just drive desperately off. What was it to get away if I got away only till dinner? That would be in a couple of hours. At the end of which I had the acute provision, my little pupils would play at innocent wonder about my non-appearance in their train. What did you do, you naughty bad thing? Why in the world to worry us so and take our thoughts off too? Don't you know? Did you desert us at the very door? I couldn't meet such questions, nor as they asked them, their false little lovely eyes. Yet it was all so exactly what I should have to meet that, as the prospect grew sharp to me. I at last let myself go. I got, so far as the immediate moment was concerned, away. I came straight out of the churchyard and, thinking hard, retraced my steps through the park. It seemed to me that by the time I reached the house, I had made up my mind I would fly. The Sunday stillness, both of the approaches and of the interior, in which I met no one, fairly excited me with a sense of opportunity. Were I to get off quickly this way, I should get off without a scene, without a word. My quickness would have to be remarkable, however, and the question of a conveyance was the great one to settle. Tormented in the hall with difficulties and obstacles, I remember sinking down at the foot of the staircase, suddenly collapsing there on the lowest step, and then, with a revulsion, recalling that it was exactly where more than a month before, in the darkness of night, and just so bowed with evil things, 
I had seen the specter of the most horrible of women. At this I was able to straighten myself. I went the rest of the way up. I made in my bewilderment for the schoolroom where there were objects belonging to me that I should have to take, but I opened the door to find again in a flash my eyes unsealed. In the presence of what I saw, I reeled straight back upon my resistance. Seated at my own table, in clear noonday light, I saw a person whom, without my previous experience, I should have taken at the first blush for some housemaid who might have stayed at home to look after the place, and who, availing herself of rare relief from observation and of the schoolroom table and my pen's ink and paper, had applied herself to the considerable effort of a letter to her sweetheart. There was an effort in the way that, while her arms rested on the table, her hands with evident weariness supported her head. But at the moment I took this in, I had already become aware that, in spite of my entrance, her attitude strangely persisted. Then it was, with the very act of its announcing itself, that her identity flared up in a change of posture. She rose, not as if she had heard me, but with an indescribable grand melancholy of indifference and detachment, and within a dozen feet of me stood there as my vile predecessor. Dishonored and tragic, she was all before me, but even as I fixed and for memory secured it, the awful image passed away. Dark as midnight in her black dress, her haggard beauty and her unutterable woe, she had looked at me long enough to appear to say that her right to sit at my table was as good as mine to sit at hers. While these instants lasted, indeed I had the extraordinary chill of feeling that it was I who was the intruder. It was as a wild protest against it that, actually addressing her, "'You terrible, miserable woman!' I heard myself break into a sound that, by the open door, rang through the long passage in the empty house. She looked at me as if she heard me, but I had recovered myself and cleared the air. There was nothing in the room the next minute but the sunshine and a sense that I must stay. Chapter 16 I had so perfectly expected that the return of my pupils would be marked by a demonstration that I was freshly upset at having to take into account that they were dumb about my absence. Instead of gaily denouncing and caressing me, they made no allusion to my having failed them, and I was left for the time on perceiving that she too said nothing to study Mrs. Gross's odd face. I did this to such purpose that I made sure they had in some way bribed her to silence, a silence that, however, I would engage to break down on the first private opportunity. This opportunity came before tea. I secured five minutes with her in the housekeeper's room where, in the twilight, Amid a smell of lately baked bread, but with the place all swept and garnished, I found her sitting in plain placidity before the fire. So I see her still, so I see her best, facing the flame from her straight chair in the dusky shining room, a large clean image of the put-away of drawers closed and locked, and rest without a remedy. Oh, yes, they asked me to say nothing and to please them, so long as they were there. Of course I promised— "'But what had happened to you?' "'I only went with you for a walk,' I said. "'I had then to come back to meet a friend.' "'She showed her surprise. "'A friend? You?' "'Oh, yes, I have a couple,' I laughed. "'But did the children give you a reason?' "'For not alluding to your leaving us? "'Yes, they said you would like it better. "'Do you like it better?' "'My face had made her rueful. "'No, I like it worse. "'But after an instant I added, "'Did they say why I should like it better?' "'No, 
Master Miles only said, We must do nothing but what she likes. I wish indeed he would. And what did Flora say? Miss Flora was too sweet. She said, Oh, of course, of course. And I said the same. I thought a moment. You were too sweet, too. I can hear you all. But nonetheless, between Miles and me, it's now all out. All out? My companion stared. But what, miss? Everything. It doesn't matter. I've made up my mind. I came home, my dear, I went on, for a talk with Miss Jessel. I had by this time formed the habit of having Mrs. Gross literally well in hand in advance of my sounding that note, so that even now, as she bravely blinked under the signal of my word, I could keep her comparatively firm. A talk? Do you mean she spoke? It came to that. I found her on my return in the schoolroom. And what did she say? I can hear the good woman still, and the candor of her stupefaction. That she suffers the torments. It was this of a truth that made her, as she filled out my picture, gape. Do you mean, she faltered, of the lost? Of the lost, of the damned. And that's why, to share them. I faltered myself with the horror of it. But my companion, with less imagination, kept me up. To share them? She wants Flora. Mrs. Gross, Mrs. Gross might, as I gave it to her, fairly have fallen away from me had I not been prepared. I still held her there, to show I was. As I've told you, however, it doesn't matter. Because you've made up your mind. But what? To everything. And what do you call everything? Why, sending for their uncle. Oh, miss, in pity do, my friend broke out. Oh, but I will, I will. I see it's the only way. What's out, as I told you, with Miles, is that if he thinks I'm afraid to, and has ideas of what he gains by that, he shall see he's mistaken. Yes, yes, his uncle shall have it here from me on the spot, and before the boy himself, if necessary, that if I'm to be reproached with having done nothing again about more school— Yes, miss, my companion pressed me. Well, there's that awful reason. There were now clearly so many of these for my poor colleague that she was excusable for being vague. But a... which? Why, the letter from his old place. You'll show it to the master? I ought to have done so on the instant. Oh, no, said Mrs. Gross with decision. I'll put it before him, I went on inexorably, that I can't undertake to work the question on behalf of a child who has been expelled, for we've never in the least known what, Mrs. Gross declared, for wickedness, for what else, when he's so clever and beautiful and perfect. Is he stupid? Is he untidy? Is he infirm? Is he ill-natured? He's exquisite, so it can only be that, and that I would open up the whole thing. After all, I said, it's their uncle's fault. If he left here such people, he didn't really in the least know them. The fault's mine, she had turned quite pale. Well, you shan't suffer, I answered. The children shan't, she emphatically returned. I was silent a while. We looked at each other. Then what am I to tell him? You needn't tell him anything. I'll tell him. I measured this. Do you mean you'll write? Remembering she couldn't, I caught myself up. How do you communicate? I tell the bailiff. He writes. And you should like him to write our story? My question had a sarcastic force that I had not fully intended, and it made her, after a moment, inconsequently break down. The tears were again in her eyes. Oh, miss, you write? Well, tonight, I at last answered, and on this we separated. Chapter 17
I went so far in the evening as to make a beginning. The weather had changed back, a great wind was abroad, and beneath the lamp in my room, with Flora at peace beside me, I sat for a long time before a blank sheet of paper and listened to the lash of the rain and the batter of the gusts. Finally I went out taking a candle. I crossed the passage and listened a minute at Miles's door. What under my endless obsession I had been impelled to listen for was some betrayal of his not being at rest, and I presently caught one, but not in the form I had expected. His voice tinkled out. "'I say, you there, come in!' It was a gaiety in the gloom. I went in with my light and found him in bed, very wide awake, but very much at his ease. "'Well, what are you up to?' he asked with a grace of sociability in which it occurred to me that Mrs. Gross, had she been present, might have looked in vain for proof that anything was out. I stood over him with my candle. "'How did you know I was there?' "'Why, of course I heard you. Did you fancy you made no noise? You're like a troop of cavalry!' He beautifully laughed. "'Then you weren't asleep?' "'Not much. I lie awake and think.' I had put my candle designedly a short way off, and then, as he held out his friendly old hand to me, had sat down on the edge of his bed. "'What is it?' I asked, "'that you think of. What in the world, my dear, but you?' "'Ah, the pride I take in your appreciation doesn't insist on that. I had so far rather you slept. Well, I think also, you know, of this queer business of ours.' I marked the coolness of his firm little hand. "'Of what queer business, Miles? Why, the way you bring me up, and all the rest.' I fairly held my breath a minute, and even from my glimmering taper there was light enough to show how he smiled up at me from his pillow. "'What do you mean by all the rest? Oh, you know, you know.' I could say nothing for a minute, though I felt, as I held his hand, and our eyes continued to meet, that my silence had all the air of admitting his charge, and that nothing in the whole world of reality was perhaps at that moment so fabulous as our actual relation. "'Certainly you shall go back to school,' I said, "'if it be that that troubles you. "'But not to the old place. "'We must find another, a better. "'How could I know it did trouble you, this question, "'when you never told me so, never spoke of it at all?' "'His clear, listening face, framed in its smooth whiteness, "'made him, for the moment, so appealing "'as some wistful patient in a children's hospital, "'and I would have given, as the resemblance came to me, "'all I possessed on earth, really, "'to be the nurse or the sister of charity,' who might have helped to cure him. Well, even as it was, I perhaps might help. Do you know you've never said a word to me about our school? I mean the old one. Never mentioned it in any way. He seemed to wonder. He smiled with the same loveliness, but he clearly gained time. He waited. He called for guidance. Haven't I? It wasn't for me to help him. It was for the thing I had met. Something in his tone and the expression of his face as I got this from him set my heart aching with such a pang as it had never yet known. So unutterably touching was it to see his little brain puzzled and his little resources taxed to play under the spell laid on him a part of innocence and consistency. No, never from the hour you came back. You've never mentioned to me one of your masters, one of your comrades, nor the least little thing that ever happened to you at school. Never, little Miles. No, never have you given me an inkling of anything that may have happened there. "'Therefore, you can fancy how much I'm in the dark. "'Until you came out that way this morning, "'you had, since the first hour I saw you, "'scarce even made a reference to anything in your previous life. "'You seemed so perfectly to accept the present. "'It was extraordinary how my absolute conviction "'of his secret precocity 
or whatever I might call the poison of an influence that I dared but have to phrase, made him, in spite of the faint breath of his inward trouble, appear as accessible as an older person, imposed him almost as an intellectual equal. I thought you wanted to go on as you are. It struck me that at this he just faintly colored. He gave, at any rate, like a convalescent, slightly fatigued, a languid shake of his head. I don't. I want to get away. You're tired of Bly? Oh, no, I like Bly. Well, then, oh, you know what a boy wants. I felt that I didn't know so well as Miles, and I took temporary refuge. You want to go to your uncle? Again at this, with his sweet, ironic face, he made a movement on the pillow. Oh, you can't get off with that. I was silent a little, and it was I, now, I think, who changed color. My dear, I don't want to get off. You can't. Even if you do, you can't. You can't. He lay beautifully staring. My uncle must come down, and you must completely settle things. If we do, I returned with some spirit, you may be sure it will be to take you quite away. Well, don't you understand that that's exactly what I'm working for? You'll have to tell him about the way you've let it all drop. You'll have to tell him a tremendous lot. The exaltation with which he uttered this helped me somehow, for the instant, to meet him rather more. And how much will you, Miles, have to tell him? There are things he'll ask you. He turned it over. Very likely, but what things? The things you've never told me. To make up his mind what to do with you. He can't send you back. Oh, I don't want to go back, he broke in. I want a new field. He said it with admirable serenity, with positive, unimpeachable gaiety, and doubtless it was that very note that most evoked for me the poignancy, the unnatural childish tragedy of his probable reappearance at the end of three months, with all this bravado and still more dishonor. It overwhelmed me now that I should never be able to bear that, and it made me let myself go. I threw myself upon him, and in the tenderness of my pity I embraced him. Dear little Miles, dear little Miles. My face was close to his, and he let me kiss him, simply taking it with indulgent good humor. Well, old lady, is there nothing, nothing at all that you want to tell me? He turned off a little, facing round toward the wall, and holding up his hand to look at, as one had seen sick children look. I've told you, I told you this morning. Oh, I was sorry for him, that you just want me not to worry you. He looked round at me now, as if in recognition of my understanding him, then ever so gently. To let me alone, he replied. There was even a singular little dignity in it, something that made me release him, yet when I had slowly risen, linger beside him. God knows I never wished to harass him, but I felt that merely at this to turn my back on him was to abandon, or, to put it more truly, to lose him. I've just begun a letter to your uncle, I said. Well, then finish it. I waited a minute. What happened before? He gazed up at me again. Before what? Before you came back, and before you went away. For some time he was silent, but he continued to meet my eyes. What happened? It made me, the sound of the words, in which it seemed to me that I caught, for the very first time, a small, faint quaver of consenting consciousness. It made me drop on my knees beside the bed and seize once more the chance of possessing him. Dear little Miles, Dear little Miles, if you knew how I want to help you, it's nothing but that, and I'd rather die than give you a pain or do you a wrong. I'd rather die than hurt a hair of you. Dear little Miles, 
Oh, I brought it out now, even if I should go too far. I just want you to help me to save you. But I knew in a moment after this that I had gone too far. The answer to my appeal was instantaneous, but it came in the form of an extraordinary blast and chill, a gust of frozen air and a shake of the room as great as if in the wild wind the casement had crashed in. The boy gave a loud high shriek which, lost in the rest of the shock of sound, might have seemed indistinctly, though I was so close to him, a note either of jubilation or of terror. I jumped to my feet again and was conscious of darkness. So for a moment we remained while I stared about me and saw that the drawn curtains were unstirred and the window tight. "'Why, the candle's out!' I then cried. "'It was I who blew it, dear,' said Miles." Chapter 18 The next day, after lessons, Mrs. Gross found a moment to say to me quietly, "'Have you written, miss?' "'Yes, I've written. But I didn't add, for the hour, that my letter, sealed and directed, was still in my pocket. There would be time enough to send it before the messenger should go to the village. Meanwhile, there had been, on the part of my pupils, no more brilliant, more exemplary morning. It was exactly as if they had both had at heart to gloss over any recent little friction.' They performed the dizziest feats of arithmetic, soaring quite out of my feeble range, and perpetrated, in higher spirits than ever, geographical and historical jokes. It was conspicuous, of course, and Miles in particular, that he appeared to wish to show how easily he could let me down. This child, to my memory, really lives in a setting of beauty and misery that no words can translate. There was a distinction all his own in every impulse he revealed— Never was a small natural creature, to the uninitiated eye all frankness and freedom, a more ingenious, a more extraordinary little gentleman. I had perpetually to guard against the wonder of contemplation into which my initiated view betrayed me, to check the irrelevant gaze and discouraged sigh in which I constantly both attacked and renounced the enigma of what such a little gentleman could have done that deserved a penalty. Say that, by the dark prodigy I knew, the imagination of all evil had been opened up to him— all the justice within me ached for the proof that it could ever have flowered into an act. He had never, at any rate, been such a little gentleman as when, after our early dinner on this dreadful day, he came round to me and asked if I shouldn't like him for half an hour to play to me. David playing to Saul could never have shown a finer sense of the occasion. It was literally a charming exhibition of tact, of magnanimity, and quite tantamount to his saying outright, the true knights we love to read about never push an advantage too far. I know what you mean now. You mean that, to be let alone yourself and not followed up, you'll cease to worry and spy upon me. Won't keep me so close to you. Will let me go and come. Well, I come, you see, but I don't go. There'll be plenty of time for that. I do really delight in your society, and I only want to show you that I contend for a principle. It may be imagined whether I resisted this appeal or failed to accompany him again hand in hand to the schoolroom. He sat down at the old piano and played as he had never played, and if there are those who think he had better have been kicking a football, I can only say that I wholly agree with them. For at the end of a time that under his influence I had quite ceased to measure, I started up with a strange sense of having literally slept at my post. It was after luncheon, and by the schoolroom fire, and yet I hadn't really in the least slept. I had only done something much worse. I had forgotten. Where all this time was Flora. When I put the question to Miles, he played on a minute before answering and then could only say, Why, my dear, how do I know? 
breaking moreover into a happy laugh which, immediately after, as if it were a vocal accompaniment, he prolonged into incoherent, extravagant song. I went straight to my room, but his sister was not there. Then, before going downstairs, I looked into several others. As she was nowhere about, she would surely be with Mrs. Gross, whom, in the comfort of that theory, I accordingly proceeded in quest of. I found her where I had found her the evening before, but she met my quick challenge with blank, sacred ignorance. She had only supposed that, after the repast, I had carried off both the children, as to which she was quite in her right, for it was the very first time I had allowed the little girl out of my sight without some special provision. Of course, now, indeed, she might be with the maids, so that the immediate thing was to look for her without an air of alarm. This we promptly arranged between us, but when, ten minutes later, and in pursuance of our arrangement, we met in the hall, it was only to report on either side that, after guarded inquiries, we had altogether failed to trace her. For a minute there, apart from observation, we exchanged mute alarms, and I could feel with what high interest my friend returned me all those I had from the first given her. "'She'll be above,' she presently said, "'in one of the rooms you haven't searched.' "'No, she's at a distance.' I had made up my mind. "'She has gone out.' Mrs. Gross stared. "'Without a hat?' I naturally also looked volumes. "'Isn't that woman always without one?' "'She's with her,' I declared. "'We must find them.' My hand was on my friend's arm, but she failed for the moment, confronted with such an account of the matter, to respond to my pressure. She communed, on the contrary, on the spot with her uneasiness. "'And where's Master Miles?' "'Oh, he's with Quint. They're in the schoolroom.' "'Lord, miss!' My view, I was myself aware, and therefore I suppose my tone, had never yet reached so calm an assurance. "'The trick's played,' I went on. "'They've successfully worked their plan. He found the most divine little way to keep me quiet while she went off.' "'Divine?' Mrs. Gross bewilderedly echoed. "'Infernal, then,' I almost cheerfully rejoined. "'He has provided for himself as well. But come.' She had helplessly gloomed at the upper regions. "'You leave him so long with Quint?' "'Yes, I don't mind that now.' She always ended at these moments by getting possession of my hand, and in this manner she could at present still stay me. But after gasping an instant at my sudden resignation, "'Because of your letter,' she eagerly brought out. I quickly, by way of answer felt for my letter, drew it forth, held it up, and then, freeing myself, went and laid it on the great hall table. "'Luke will take it,' I said as I came back. I reached the house door and opened it. I was already on the steps. My companion still demurred. The storm of the night and the early morning had dropped, but the afternoon was damp and gray. I came down to the drive while she stood in the doorway. "'You go with nothing on?' "'What do I care when the child has nothing? I can't wait to dress,' I cried. "'And if you must do so, I leave you. Try, try, meanwhile, yourself, upstairs.' "'With them?' "'Oh, on this, the poor woman promptly joined me. Chapter 19 We went straight to the lake, as it was called at Bly, and I dare say rightly called, though I reflect that it may in fact have been a sheet of water less remarkable than it appeared to my untraveled eyes. My acquaintance with sheets of water was small, and the pool of Bly, at all events, on the few occasions of my consenting, under the protection of my pupils, to affront its surface in the old flat-bottomed boat moored there for our use, had impressed me, both with its extent and its agitation. The usual place of embarkation was half a mile from the house, but I had an intimate conviction that, wherever Flora might be, she was not near home. 
She had not given me the slip for any small adventure, and since the day of the very great one that I had shared with her by the pond, I had been aware, in our walks, of the quarter to which she most inclined. This was why I had now given to Mrs. Gross's steps so marked a direction, a direction that made her, when she perceived it, oppose a resistance that showed me she was freshly mystified. "'You're going to the water, miss. You think she's in? She may be, though the depth is, I believe, nowhere very great. But what I judge most likely is that she's on the spot from which, the other day, we saw together what I told you. When she pretended not to see, with that astounding self-possession, I've always been sure she wanted to go back alone, and now her brother has managed it for her. Mrs. Gross still stood where she had stopped. You suppose they really talk of them? I could meet this with a confidence. They say things that, if we heard them, would simply appall us. And if she is there... Yes? Then Miss Jessel is. Beyond a doubt, you shall see. Oh, thank you, my friend cried, planted so firm that, taking it in, I went straight on without her. By the time I reached the pool, however, she was close behind me, and I knew that whatever to her apprehension might befall me, the exposure of my society struck her as her least danger. She exhaled a moan of relief as we at last came in sight of the greater part of the water without a sight of the child. There was no trace of Flora on that nearer side of the bank where my observation of her had been most startling, and none on the opposite edge where, save for a margin of some twenty yards, a thick copse came down to the water. The pond, oblong in shape, had a width so scant compared to its length that, with its ends out of view, it might have been taken for a scant river. We looked at the empty expanse, and then I felt the suggestion of my friend's eyes. I knew what she meant, and I replied with a negative headshake. No, 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 wait, she has taken the boat. My companion stared at the vacant mooring place, and then again across the lake. Then where is it? Our not seeing it is the strongest of proofs. She has used it to go over, and then has managed to hide it. All alone? That child? She's not alone, and at such times she's not a child. She's an old, old woman. I scanned all the visible shore, while Mrs. Gross took again into the queer element I offered her, one of her plunges of submission. Then I pointed out that the boat might perfectly be in a small refuge formed by one of the recesses of the pool— an indentation masked for the hither side by a projection of the bank and by a clump of trees growing close to the water. "'But if the boat's there, where on earth's she?' my colleague anxiously asked. "'That's exactly what we must learn.' And I started to walk further. "'By going all the way round?' "'Certainly, far as it is. It will take us but ten minutes, but it's far enough to have made the child prefer not to walk. She went straight over.' "'Laws!' cried my friend again. The chain of my logic was ever too much for her. It dragged her at my heels even now, and when we had gotten halfway round, a devious, tiresome process, on ground much broken and by a path choked with overgrowth, I paused to give her breath. I sustained her with a grateful arm, assuring her that she might hugely help me, and this started us afresh, so that in the course of but a few minutes more, we reached a point from which we found the boat to be where I had supposed it. It had been intentionally left as much as possible out of sight, and it was tied to one of the stakes of a fence that came just there, down to the brink, and that had been an assistance to disembarking. I recognized, as I looked at the pair of short, thick oars, quite safely drawn up, the prodigious character of the feet for a little girl. But I had lived by this time too long among wonders, and had panted to too many livelier measures. There was a gate in the fence through which we passed, 
and that brought us, after a trifling interval, more into the open. Then, there she is, we both exclaimed at once. Flora, a short way off, stood before us on the grass and smiled as if her performance was now complete. The next thing she did, however, was to stoop straight down and pluck, quite as if it were all she was there for, a big ugly spray of withered fern. I instantly became sure she had just come out of the copse. She waited for us, not herself taking a step, and I was conscious of the rare solemnity with which we presently approached her. She smiled and smiled, and we met, but it was all done in a silence by this time flagrantly ominous. Mrs. Gross was the first to break the spell. She threw herself on her knees and, drawing the child to her breast, clasped in a long embrace the little tender yielding body. While this dumb convulsion lasted, I could only watch it, which I did the more intently when I saw Flora's face peep at me over our companion's shoulder. It was serious now. The flicker had left it, but it strengthened the pang with which I at that moment envied Mrs. Gross the simplicity of her relation. Still, all this while, nothing more passed between us save that Flora had let her foolish fern again drop to the ground. What she and I had virtually said to each other was that pretexts were now useless. When Mrs. Gross finally got up, she capped the child's hand so that the two were still before me, and the singular reticence of our communion was even more marked in the frank look she launched at me. "'I'll be hanged,' it said, "'if I'll speak.' It was Flora who, gazing all over me in candid wonder, was the first. She was struck with our bareheaded aspect. "'Why, where are your things?' "'Where yours are, my dear,' I promptly returned. She had already got back her gaiety and appeared to take this as an answer quite sufficient. "'And where's Miles?' she went on. And there was something in the small valor of it that quite finished me. These three words from her were, in a flash, like the glitter of a drawn blade, the jostle of the cup that my hand, for weeks and weeks, had held high and full to the brim that now, even before speaking, I felt overflow in a deluge. "'I'll tell you if you tell me,' I heard myself say, then heard the tremor in which it broke. "'Well, what?' Mrs. Gross's suspense blazed at me, but it was too late now, and I brought the thing out handsomely. "'Where, my pet, is Miss Jessel?' 